Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 13, Peace, Fructidor, and Talihuang. Welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode as Napoleon's Army of Italy successfully, after a much protracted struggle, broke the Austrian resolve and captured the city of Manua, effectively taking out the Austrian army and pushing him to the brink of capitulation in the War of the First Coalition. And with that taken care of, it was now time to arrange for the peace that would finally settle over Europe. Well, at least for a short while anyway. But before we get into that, just a few house cleaning items. I mentioned it at the start of the last episode, but since I'll be moving across the country this week, and with this week also being Thanksgiving in the States, our following episodes will likely be delayed for an additional week, much as this one was. But after that, and this is the promise I'm making to you, I will make sure that our following episodes are on pace for once a week especially since these next two episodes, we're going to be getting into the events that turned Napoleon into one of the makers of history. So I appreciate everyone's patience, but once I'm fully settled down, we'll be ready to go. Okay, so with that settled, on with the show. After the Austrians made their way back north across the border, Napoleon knew that he held all the cards in their peace negotiations. The Austrians were alarmed at how quickly the French were able to thrust themselves to within a few hundred kilometers of the Austrian capital and knew that suing for peace was really their only option, lest the opulent city be subjected to the same fate as Manoa was for the previous year. Napoleon was also hoping that Generals Moreau and Hoche would recross the Rhine and allowed a complete envelopment of the Austrian frontier, further pushing their concessions in France's favor. And when Moreau finally did cross the Rhine on April 18, 1797, the French and Austrians were about to sign their preliminary peace settlement. The Austrians sent the Marquis de Gallo as their representative to negotiate the terms while Napoleon negotiated on behalf of France. Now, whether he had the authority to do so, he did not, was irrelevant. He would be the one dictating what France would receive and what Austria would give up. Gallo conceded that the Austrians would finally recognize the French Republic as long as the French would show the same reverence to the rest of the European monarchs that was to be expected of a sovereign nation. Napoleon, again understanding that France was in firm control of what was to be negotiated, allowed it to be adopted in the settlement since the French were, quote, completely indifferent to everything concerning etiquette. And while the Austrians clearly hated dealing with the French Republicans generally, and Napoleon specifically, they nevertheless agreed to all the terms laid out by the general. Which brings us to the battle within the battle here. Napoleon had clearly seized the balance of power from the Directory in negotiating with the Austrians. The Directory, believing that they could dismantle the Austrians, wanted to take everything. But Napoleon was far shrewder in how he dealt with the peace. He knew that if he wanted to, he could have marched on Vienna and taken it. But at great cost, as well as being dangerously stretched thin from his Italian supply routes. So without consulting the Directory, only letting them know the terms in his correspondences with them, 
Napoleon negotiated and signed the terms of the Treaty of Leoben on April 19, 1797, which became effective the previous day. The terms were as follows. Austria would cede the duchies of Milan and Modena, as well as the Austrian Netherlands, modern-day Belgium, to France. Austria was also to recognize the constitutional limits of the French Republic, which they considered to extend beyond the Rhine River, and in exchange, France would recognize the remainder of the Austrian Empire. Now, this was the sticking point for the Directory, who wanted more to crush Emperor Francis's rule, but Napoleon believed that keeping these terms as they were would pave the way for greater success down the road. Better to rest up now for the bigger fight in the future, as he thought it. Additional secret clauses in the treaty made Austria renounce all of her Italian possessions west of the Aglio River to the French-installed Cispidane Republic, but the Austrians, on the other hand, would receive all of the mainland territories west of Venice, including Dalmatia and Istria, which are parts of modern-day Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy. Any Venetian lands west of the Aglio River would, of course, go to France. Now wait, you may be thinking, wasn't Venice neutral? How were they suddenly thrown into negotiations between two other countries? Well, as is most often the case in wars concerning countries surrounding your borders, Venice was neutral in theory, but in practice, they were heavily supportive of the Austrians and other coalition forces. Indeed, prior to the negotiations of Leo Ben, Napoleon knew that Venice would offer the greatest immediate threat to the peace. Venice, keen to keep her independence, was beginning to arm rapidly. Although it was clear to all parties, she would not be able to field an army large enough or effective enough to repel any type of attack by the French forces. But on April 17th, Venetian-held Verona staged an uprising and massacred around 400 French soldiers. The action was all Napoleon needed to include them in negotiations between Austria and France. Writing back to the Directory, he stated, quote, I will take general measures for all the Venetian mainland, and I will issue such extreme punishments that they won't soon forget. The Directory, while still believing that they could have gotten more out of the negotiations, knew they had little wiggle room to deal with both the Austrians and, of course, Napoleon. And so they approved the Leo Ben terms in a vote of four to one. The only no vote came from Director Jean-Francois Roubel, who actually thought the terms were too harsh on the Austrians. Nevertheless, it did pass. And the Austrians, for their part, had few complaints. Indeed, all things considered, it appeared that they had gotten off light compared to what they were likely expecting. And those complaints were small and trivial, and without much pushback, they signed the terms as well. The Treaty of Leo Ben was the precursor to the more comprehensive Treaty of Campo Formio, which wouldn't be signed until later that October, but unsurprisingly was also negotiated by Napoleon, and that treaty would formally end the War of the First Coalition. But before we get to October and Campo Formio, we need to address the growing threat that Napoleon was facing from the now suddenly hostile Venice, and why they were so keen on defending their independence. To add some historical context here, the Venetian Republic treasured her independence more than it did the plethora of historic artworks which filled the buildings. As a prosperous city-state founded in 697 AD, Venice possessed numerous overseas territories which generated its immense wealth making it one of the richest and most powerful countries in medieval Europe. Controlling parts of what are now modern-day Croatia, Slovenia, Montenegro, Greece, Albania, and Cyprus, Venice was able to use her strategic location as a trading hub between Western Europe, Africa, and Asia via the Ottoman Empire. And this trade created a large, affluent merchant class who were then able to invest it in shipbuilding, public works, and exploration. You may have heard of one of their explorers, a certain Marco Polo. With her vast wealth, 
Venice would become revered for her role during the Renaissance, contributing greatly to the artwork, literature, music, and playwrights of the period. But like many powers of her day, Venice would soon begin a slow decline while the rest of Europe supplanted her prestige and influence. Because with the European discovery of the Americas leading to the growing international sea trade via the Atlantic and Indian Oceans through private organizations such as the Dutch and British East Indian companies, Venice began to see her maritime monopoly diminish. Likewise, her longtime rival, the Ottoman Empire, experienced her own decline for very similar existential factors, and the two would fight wars throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, further crippling them both. Notably, during the Cretan War of 1645 to 1669, fought between the two nations, the Venetians withstood the second longest siege in history at the Siege of Candia, lasting 21 grueling years. And while they would ultimately lose the siege and the war, the effort and financial cost for the Ottomans was so great that it would contribute greatly to their further decline going into the Great Turkish War, famous for the historic Battle of Vienna, one of the most important events in European and Middle Eastern history. But I digress. With all these factors combined, by the time Napoleon rolled into Italy, the Venetian Republic consisted only of her possessions in northern Italy, mainly in the Po Valley, extending as far west as Milan. Many of the cities within her domain benefited greatly from what has been called the Pax Venetiae, or the Venetian Peace, as she still held considerable wealth in the form of local trade, as well as art and regional commerce. But when the revolutionary French armies crossed into Italy, Venice had little in the way of defending herself against a far superior French force. Her war fleet numbered only four galleys and seven galliettes. A galley was a warship propelled by oars, and a galliette was a smaller version of the galley. So in essence, their navy was made up of obsolete ships, and they had far too small of an army. But what they lacked in military strength they made up for in pride. They were well aware of their history in fighting off greater powers, and they were still determined to fight off a far stronger French force, no matter the cost. So, with that said, let's see how that turned out for them. Napoleon knew that per the secret agreements in Leo Ben, he wouldn't just be able to waltz into Venice without provocation and then take France's half of the region. So he decided to make one. On April 20th, the hostile Venetians gave Napoleon the only excuse he needed to enter into their quote-unquote neutral territory by opening fire on a French vessel moored off their coast, placed there on Napoleon's orders, of course, killing one of the captains on board. Now, Napoleon likely would have done this regardless, but now with the causus belli, he demanded that Venice expel the British ambassador and pro-Bourbon French emigres, hand over British goods, and pay a $20 million franc contribution while arresting the... <clears throat> assassins responsible for the death of the French captain on the illegally moored boat. When the Venetians rebuffed the demands and then presented demands of their own, Napoleon ordered the citizens evacuate the area and also encouraged uprisings in Brescia and Bergamo. On May 3rd, he declared war on Venice, and in only 10 days, the last doge, or duke, of the Venetian Republic, Ludovico Manin, surrendered unconditionally. They tried desperately to save their republic with any means necessary, up to and including bribing Napoleon personally, but it was to no avail. Napoleon would respond to these offers by saying, quote, French blood has been treacherously shed. If you could offer me the treasures of Peru, if you could cover your whole dominion with gold, the atonement would be insufficient. The Lion of St. Mark must lick the dust. On May 16th, 5,000 French troops entered the city as liberators, taking the four bronze horses there that, according to legend, had graced Trajan's arch in Imperial Rome, 
sent them back to Paris to be displayed in the Louvre, and after 1,200 years, the Venetian Republic ceased to exist, just like that. France, of course, installed a new puppet government and would then negotiate a favorable treaty with them in which Venice would construct three battleships and two frigates for the French Navy, pay a contribution of 15 million francs, provide 20 paintings and 500 manuscripts, of course, and hand over the territory between the Cispidane Republic and Austria. You know, the land that they secretly negotiated with Austria behind closed doors. Venice, though, would receive the eternal friendship of France. So, there's that. So, let's do a little recap here. Since the start of the Italian campaign, Napoleon had now negotiated treaties with Piedmont Sardinia, Rome, Naples, the Austrian Empire, and now Venice. He did so without the consultation of the Directory on any of them, with the exception of Piedmont, and he redrew the map of all of northern Italy. The coup he had instilled in northern Italy was, well, truly staggering. And he wasn't done yet because he was about to turn Genoa into another friendly client state, the Ligurian Republic. You see, at the end of May, street fighting broke out between the Genoese Doge forces and the pro-French Jacobini Democrats, egged on by our old friend Salicetti. Now, while the Doge's forces prevailed, Napoleon, while furious at Salicetti and the Democrats for fermenting the violence, used the excuse to threaten Genoa into surrender. Because, you see, Genoa was in nearly the same exact situation that Venice was in militarily only weeks prior. And without a standing army able to withstand the long campaign against the French, they, well, they too quickly capitulated. And Napoleon formed the Ligurian Republic out of her ashes. Her government would be based on the 1795 French Constitution, and Napoleon would use the occasion to further expand France's, than his own, influence in Italy. And it's at this point that we have to pause for a moment and take into consideration that Napoleon was now making the full-blown transition from a military conqueror-slash-dictator to the quasi-king of Italy. I mean, look, rewriting the map and negotiating all the treaties aside, he even fancied himself a lifestyle fit for a king. While he was busy finishing off the Venetians and Genoese, Napoleon made his main residence at the Palazzo Mombello, a small village outside of Milan. And rather than using the location as a military headquarters in which his general staff would be briefed, Napoleon preferred the court life. He had lavished public banquets, reminiscent of the Bourbon days of Versailles. He dined with intellectuals of the times, all of them graced to be in his presence. He'd had local nobility at his tables for consultations rather than his usual aide-de-camp, and, most importantly, he invited much of his family to join him in his court. Surrounded by natural splendor and a palazzo adorned with lush gardens and priceless artwork, Napoleon wasn't just sipping from the nectar of authority. He was, well, chugging it like a college kegger. And it's also here at Mombello that Napoleon began one of his more famous, or infamous, familial fascinations, playing the matchmaker for all of his siblings, particularly his sisters. Now, I think it's safe to say that in the spring of 1797, Napoleon knew that he was in a prime internal position to begin bargaining for more, how shall I say, personal authority over his, well, how shall I say, conquered territorial possessions. So, might as well start playing the monarch game of marrying off every one of your siblings to noblemen or generals just to get ahead of what's inevitably going to be yours, right? Well, at least that's how I'd like to think Napoleon envisioned it. Napoleon began by marrying off his 21-year-old sister Eliza to Corsican nobleman Felice Bacchiocci, who soon after found himself quickly promoted in Napoleon's army and ultimately became Prince of Lucca in Tuscany. 
I'm sure it was a coincidence. He then married his 17-year-old sister Pauline to then 25-year-old General Charles Leclerc, who served with Napoleon at Toulon. But Leclerc is probably better known for being assigned to lead an expeditionary force sent to Haiti to capture Haitian rebel leader Toussaint Louverture as part of an unsuccessful attempt to reassert imperial control over the colony of Saint-Domingue. Leclerc would ultimately die of yellow fever during the expedition, as would most Frenchmen sent there. But we'll have plenty of time to visit that expedition and Louverture down the road, I assure you. Lastly, Napoleon would also encourage Joachim Mira to court his other sister, Caroline, and they would marry three years later in 1800. Who needs dating profiles when you have brother Napoleon at the ready, am I right? But while Napoleon was busy marrying off his sisters in Italy, the situation back in Paris was growing to become one of desperation. Inflation was running rampant throughout the country, and the paper Enseignant were practically worthless at this point, trading at near 1% of their original value. Now, we've mentioned numerous times already how poorly history has looked back on the Directory for their corruption and incompetence, but in the summer of 1797, they would be faced with their biggest political crisis since Vendamia. With discontent growing, the royalist factions in that year's elections grew, and on May 26, the Marquis de Batalame became one of the five directors, and this began the rumblings of royalist coups in the works, including one involving Revolutionary General Jean-Charles Picherou, who, while being one of the most successful commanders of revolutionary France, had switched sides to the royalist in 1795. Now, while the other four directors were prominent revolutionaries, one of them, Lazare Carnot, was now starting to lean more towards the moderates, likely privy to a coup plot and hoping to portray himself as the lone sane voice and a radical executive to, well, save his head, literally. But the discontent did not just lend itself to the conservatives of France. Many of the more radical citizens in Paris, as well as the rest of France, were also dissatisfied with the present situation and believed that more liberal changes needed to be implemented. Some became prominent voices in their dissatisfaction with the indecision of the directory, and one of the most famous of these radicals inspired many of the citizens, especially the poorest of France, a certain journalist named François-Noël Babeuf, better known by his nickname, Gracchus Babeuf, and named after the famous Gracchi brothers who served as tribunes of the people in ancient Rome. Babeuf today is best known as, well, a proto-communist, though the term communist didn't exist at the time. Nevertheless, many of the later prominent communist leaders like Karl Marx and Joseph Engels would credit Babeuf in their works, as well as much of the French Revolution in general, and named him the first revolutionary communist. Now look, we could spend another entire full episode on the fascinating life of Gracchus Babeuf, perhaps an even more radical foil to Jean-Paul Marat, but for brevity's sake and to get us back on track, the long and short of it was that Babeuf's newspaper, The Tribune of the People, was immensely popular and promoted advocacy of the poor, calling for popular revolts against the bourgeois directory, and for the abolition of private property. Babeuf used his influence by also calling for a coup against the directory, known as the Conspiracy of Equals, the year before in 1796. But it failed, and he was promptly arrested and executed in May of 1797. Still, with his ideas well entrenched throughout much of the poorer members of society, the Directory now needed to contend with both sides of the aisle, looking to boot them from power and start the cycle of revolution all over again. Which brings us back to Napoleon. Napoleon was not about to have a bunch of extremists take over a government which he shed blood for in Bondamia. Sure, Napoleon had little respect for the Directory or the Directors themselves, but think of it as a brotherly rivalry. 
only I can pick on you. If anyone else tries to pick on you, they have to deal with me. So when he heard of the growing unease back in Paris, Napoleon sent one of his war ministers, Antoine-Marie Chamon, the Comte de la Valette, to the capital to check out the situation and then report back. When Lavalette informed Napoleon of the coup attempts, as well as their opposition to his handling of the Venice Treaty, let's just say Napoleon was, well, a little upset. Quote, Ignorant and garrulous lawyers have asked why we occupied Venice, but I warn you, and I speak in the name of 80,000 men, that the time when cowardly lawyers and wretched babblers guillotine soldiers is past. Yet if you oblige them, the troops of Italy will march on Clichy and woo on you. For those unaware, Clichy is a bit of a double entendre. It was the name of the Royalist Club in the Rue de Clichy, as well as the Parisian Gate through which an army could march into the city. Basically, don't test my might with speeches, I could pull a Caesar and cross the Rubicon back into France. Or, perhaps more accurately, the Alps. Tying in with the growing political unrest in Paris, though, Napoleon also came to see the Army of the Rhine as a growing rival, not just militarily, but politically. He argued that their stalled offensives and their quote-unquote gentlemen officers were creating a Girondin class amongst the armies of the North, and he believed his Army of Italy were far more loyal to the revolution than the more, well, prestigious Rhine commanders. In fact, when Napoleon held Bastille Day celebrations in Milan that July, a Rhine division came to Milan, led by General Jean Bernadotte, and fights broke out between the two rival armies. Now, Napoleon did provide Bernadotte the honor of taking the captured Austrian standards from the Battle of Rivoli back to Paris, but their respective growing ambitions clearly showed, and their relations would always be strained. And this, of course, would continue after Bernadotte married Napoleon's former fiancé, Desiree Clary, the following year, which is something that we touched upon during the episode on Josephine. Now, all of this growing tension between the royalist sympathies, the ambition of divergent military commanders, and looming existential threats would grow to a head as the summer came to a close. By mid-July, the situation in Paris became completely untenable. 29-year-old General Lazar Hoche was made war minister in hopes of appeasing opponents of the Directory, but he was accused by royalist members of violating the Constitution as he wasn't yet the required 30 years of age to accept the position. Though he resigned only five days later, the growing disconnect between the directors and the assembly meant that deadlock was stalling any potential for a resolution to the economic crisis in France. Without a court of higher appeal, the deadlock was all that would remain. Now, coincidentally, it was also in mid-July that the directory appointed a foreign minister by the name of Charles-Maurice de talleyrand Barigot, of course, better known to history as Talleyrand. Cunning, duplicitous, and versatile in his skills as a diplomat, Talleyrand is going to become a major player in our story over the course of this series. So much so that we're going to devote a supplemental episode to him in due time. He's just too important, too central to our story for him not to deserve one. Plus, the man is just so interesting. Talleyrand's importance to our story, though, begins here, in the summer of 1797. In July, his first act as foreign minister was to write to Napoleon asking for his friendship. Now, of course, those of us who know anything about Talleyrand, his asks of any individual were nothing more than steps on a path for his own personal gain. But here we have to take his overtures at face value. Quote, The mere name of Bonaparte is an aid which ought to smooth away all my difficulties, Talleyrand wrote to Napoleon, who replied in kind, quote, Alexander triumphed perhaps only to enthuse the Athenians. Other captains are the elite of society. You, for example. I've studied the revolution too much not to know what it owes you. 
the sacrifice that you made for it deserves recompense. You would not have to wait for it were I in power. Now, their mutual flattery notwithstanding, it is slightly amusing how both men would use their own duplicity in trying to outsmart the other over the next 18 years. These were two men cut of similar cloth, indispensable without the other at times, though both plotting their own personal rises and constant skepticism of the other. Nevertheless, Napoleon would genuinely respect Talleyrand for much of his career, until, well, we'll get to that later. But if the correspondences between the two men didn't already validate the point, in July of 1797, the two men did believe that they could form a future political alliance. As August approached, Napoleon, likely with persuading from Talleyrand, decided that he would support a barat-led coup of the French government from royalist and moderate members who he believed were endangering the Republic. On July 27th, Napoleon sent the Neo-Jacobin Agajo to Paris, telling the directory, now essentially split three to two on Republican-royalist or moderate lines, that Agajo was called by, quote, private affairs to the capital. Now, this was, of course, a bold-faced lie. He was sent to help scout the landscape and to begin the first phase of a Republican-led purge. But with the aforementioned Pichot group taking the presidency of the lower house of the assembly, if you remember the Council of 500, and another royalist, the Marquis de Babé-Mabois, becoming the president of the upper house, or the Council of Elders, Barra requested military assistance from Napoleon to carry out the coup outright. And it would be carried out on September 4th, 1797, or in the Republican calendar, 18 Fructidor. In the early morning hours of September 4th, martial law was declared in Paris and a decree was issued stating that anyone supporting royalism or the restoration of the Constitution of 1793 would be shot without trial. Now, despite a law prohibiting the movement of troops inside Paris without assembly approval, to support the coup, General Lazar Hoche did just that, arriving in Paris with his troops from his army of Sambrayat Mousse, which he commanded. Napoleon also sent troops to be under command of Agajo, who then occupied strategic points throughout the city, placing soldiers around the Tuileries, and he ended up arresting 86 deputies and several journalists, sending them to the Temple Prison in Paris. Many of those arrested would be sent to the penal colony of Guyana in South America, which, in the 18th century, was all but a death sentence due to the inevitable tropical diseases many of the prisoners would suffer in the blistering heat and unsanitary conditions. Among those sent there included Pichegru, Batalame, and the Marquis de Barbe Mabois. Lazare Carnot, the moderate director we mentioned earlier, managed to escape, however, making his way to the safety of Germany. A total of 214 deputies were arrested and 65 would be exiled. More importantly, though, the election results in 49 departments who leaned royalists were annulled. 160 recently returned émigrés were sentenced to death, and over 1,300 priests were accused of conspiring against the Republic and then deported. With Carnot and Bartholomew now purged from the Directory, Republicans Philippe, Marlene, Douai, and François de Neufchâteau replaced them. Cementing their power, the now fully Republican Directory closed all Royalist political clubs throughout Paris and purged the army of any moderate commanders, including Napoleon's hated rival, General Kellerman, who commanded the Army of the Alps. Napoleon, who was absolute in his support for the Fructidor coup, was reportedly, quote, intoxicated with joy. Fructidor was a quick and sweeping success for the Republicans, and it further asserted their dominance over the government. But as a quick aside, Napoleon's support for the Republican directors came more out of a feeling of antipathy towards the crypto-royalism rather than out of a fervent love of the directors. Indeed, years later, 
Lazar Carnot would write to Napoleon while in exile in Germany, accusing Barras of outwardly hating Napoleon, doing all he could to derail his successes. And it was he, Carnot, who lobbied successfully to get Napoleon the Army of Italy command. And while likely embellished to defend his actions leading up to Fructidor, Napoleon ostensibly believed him. Thus, Carnot was named to the war ministry once Napoleon became first consul. But without a doubt, Napoleon's support for the directors in Fructidor undoubtedly saved his command, as well as his negotiating power in Italy, which is a good segue because while Fructidor was playing out, Napoleon was busy negotiating the more comprehensive peace in Italy between France and Austria in the Treaty of Campo Formio. The aftermath of Fructidor needed to be settled domestically. Many of the directors' ministers in Italy needed to return to Paris, and this left Napoleon as the main arbiter between France and Austria, probably as he had planned it and definitely how he wanted it, if we're being honest, to discuss the greater peace between France and the First Coalition. As a refresher, Leoben would end the war in Italy. Campo Formio would formally end the war. The main negotiations took place between Napoleon and his Austrian counterpart, Count Ludwig von Kombenzel, who both viewed each other with vexing skepticism. Napoleon wrote to Talleyrand in September that he was perplexed at the Count's stupidity and bad faith towards the negotiations, while Comenzel noted how short-tempered Napoleon would become when trying to discuss the terms. But Napoleon, for his part, fluctuated between uncompromising punishment for the coalition forces and further disdain for the French government for continually failing to descend additional supplies and men to help him govern Italy, even writing to Talleyrand in October, openly wondering if the campaign and the 40,000 lives lost in it were worth it. But the Austrians understood, though, that there was no immediate hope of being able to restore the Bourbons to the throne, and they didn't try to stall the negotiations any further. And for his part, neither did Napoleon. When snow began to fall in October, Napoleon, knowing that the northern routes would be impassable for the Army of the Rhine to reinforce him, decided to sign the agreed-upon terms. At midnight on Tuesday, October 17, 1797, at the hamlet of Campo Formio, midway between he and Cobenzel's respective headquarters, both men signed the treaty on behalf of their respective nations. The terms of the treaty went as follows. Number one, Austria was to cede the Austrian Netherlands, or modern-day Belgium, and the west bank of the Rhine to France. Number two, was that France took the Ionian Isles in modern-day Greece from Venice. Number three, Austria would take Istria, Friuli, Dalmatia, and Venice itself along the DJ River and the lower Po. Number four, allowed Austria to recognize the Ligurian and Cisalpine republics, the latter of which would now merge with the Cispidane Republic, as we mentioned earlier. Number five, saw France and Austria form a most favored nation's customs union to ease trade restrictions between the two countries. Number six, saw the Duke of Modena lose his Italian lands, but he would be compensated by the Austrians with the Duchy of Bregsgum east of the Rhine River. And finally, it compelled the Austrians to give up her Rhenish strongholds of Mainz, Philipsburg, and Kiel, evacuate Ulm and Ingolstadt, and withdraw her forces behind the River Lech. Now, this last part was critical, as it presented an opportunity for Napoleon and the French. There were over 16 million ethnic Germans who didn't live in either Austria or Prussia, and Napoleon knew he had a chance to garner their support. With the Holy Roman Empire long past her glory days of the 15th to 17th centuries, the sense of unity amongst her numerous duchies and principalities was long gone. And so Napoleon wanted to extend his goodwill by compensating the German princes for taking this land since their positions would likely cease to exist once they came under French dominion. As Napoleon later put it, 
in a letter to the directory, quote, if the concept of Germany didn't exist, we would need to invent it for our own purposes. German unification, 70 years before Otto von Bismarck. In November, a conference was held in Rastatt to decide the ultimate fate of the Holy Roman Empire, of which many of these lands now lay in French control. While the Holy Roman Empire would survive for now, France would also be able to establish pro-French independent republics around Geneva, called the Lemanic Republic, and then the Helvetian Republic in Switzerland. This treaty was then sent to Paris for formal ratification by the Directory, who did so. The public were so elated at the thought of peace and the terms which were agreed upon, the Directory had little choice but to approve it, even if they felt that like they could have gotten more. Napoleon also thought that they probably could have gotten more out of the peace terms, writing to Talleyrand that he believed that had they conquered a few more Austrian provinces, they likely could have ended the Holy Roman Empire and gotten far more in terms of strategic provinces. But he knew such a campaign in the winter months would have likely proven Pyrrhic at best and catastrophic at worst. Nevertheless, after five long years, the War of the First Coalition was formally over and the French had secured not only peace but a continent-wide understanding that they were not only dealing with a formidable opponent, but a rising titan in Napoleon. The Austrians officially ratified the Treaty of Campo Formio on November 30th, and Napoleon, after two long years of successful campaigning in Italy in the Austrian frontier, made his way back to Paris. Next week, we'll discuss Napoleon's hectic interwar months back in France, the turmoil that continued in the capital, and Napoleon's head turning towards a new enemy, one with far more historical importance than the Austrians he had just defeated. Because Napoleon had turned his eyes across the Channel, as he knew who the real enemy of France was, Britain. And it would be against the British that Napoleon would fight his next campaign, as he got ready to embark on his infamous campaign in Egypt. Egypt.